welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Dr. Norman Deutsch. He says the brain can change itself. It's a plastic living organ that can actually change its own structure and function even into old age. He says arguably the most important breakthrough in neuroscience since scientists first sketched out the brain's basic anatomy. This revolutionary discovery called neuroplasticity promises to overthrow the centuries-old notion that the brain is fixed and unchanging. That's psychiatrist and researcher Norman Doidge. In his book, The Brain That Changes Itself, Dr. Doidge examines the cases of a woman born with half a brain that rewired itself to work as a whole. A woman labeled retarded who cured her deficits with brain exercises and now cures those of others. Blind people learning to see. Learning disorders cured. IQs raised. Aging brains rejuvenated. The list goes on and on. We're going to hear some spectacular stories in the hour today. Dr. Deutsch is author most recently of The Brain's Way of Healing. He says, through the emerging science of neuroplasticity, we have learned that our thoughts can switch our genes on and off, altering our brain's anatomy, and that we can develop machines that can follow these physical changes in order to read people's thoughts, allowing paralyzed to control computers and electronics just by thinking. Dr. Norman Deutsch is on the faculty at University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry. He's a research faculty at Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research in New York. And he's coming to Utah for an event on March 31st. That's at 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. That's presented by Avalon Hills Foundation. Tickets available for that. You can go to avalonhillsfoundation.org. And he joins us on the line. And in studio, we're going to be talking with uh, people who... uh, can recount stories of progress aided by research in neuroplasticity. And uh, we bring in uh, Nick Herman. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. Nick has been an intern here at UPR, so happy to have you back. Thank you. Uh, Melanie Herman, his mother, thanks for for joining us. Thanks, Tom. And we're joined by Wes and Natalie Winch. Thanks for for coming in. Recount the story of your daughter, I understand. We'll get to that as we go along. We bring in Dr. Norman Deutsch. Uh, Welcome to Access Utah. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, we're looking forward to your event uh, here in uh, in Utah. I want to jump in, uh, just a, a brief definition of neuroplasticity. How would you describe this briefly? Sure. Neuro is for neuron, the nerve cells in the brain that fire off electrical signals, and plasticity means changeable, adaptable, modifiable. And neuroplasticity is that property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and its function in response to mental experience and activity. And it's, it's a revolutionary discovery because um, for the longest time we thought, first of all, that the brain, the brain circuits were formed and finalized in childhood and that they um, couldn't be changed by mental activity. We, we, we had this view that the circuits of the brain were hardwired. And if anything, we thought that the brain produces mental activity, but the discovery now that mental activity changes brain structure and function turns our old view of the brain on its head and gives us a whole new way of influencing the brain that's non-invasive. And this old so that's view... What the fuss is all about. Gotcha. Excuse me for interrupting. Uh, the old view, you'd call this localization. There were several aspects to the older view of the brain. Um, the localizationism of it was the belief that um, in the brain, uh, the brain processed, processed mental functions in single locations in the brain. So the idea would be that, for instance, if you uh, were processing speech, it in general had to be in certain aspects of speech had to be in a certain part of the left hemisphere. And so if that area of the brain was damaged, um, there was nothing you could do to retrieve speech. 
and we now know that, in fact, areas adjacent to the damaged areas can take over. Sometimes areas in the opposite hemisphere can actually take over. And in my first book, The Brain That Changes Itself, I describe in detail a girl who was born with half a brain. She was completely missing her left hemisphere. And you would think she would have no speech whatsoever, but she speaks um, very, very well because it was possible for the brain to reorganize itself and do speech in the right hemisphere. I uh, wonder if you could uh, expand a little bit on this this girl. This is the ultimate rebuttal to localization, isn't it? She's, she's yeah, born with half a brain. Yeah, her name is Michelle Mack, and she, um, as a, as a, as a, um, when she was in the womb, it, something happened. It, it, maybe there was a stroke, but she never really developed a left hemisphere properly. It's just a very, very thin... Um, frayed peninsula of brain if you look at her brain scan whereas the right hemisphere was fully developed and um, yet Michelle developed normal speech you know you would think if I told you that a child was born without one half of the brain that that child would be sort of in an ICU somewhere with tubes in and out of her and you know on life support Um, localizationism would predict that but Lo and behold, Michelle um, is, is not in a hospital. She's grown up. She has a, a she has a job, a simple job, but a job nonetheless. And she loves. She has preferences. She she, she votes in elections and um, leads leads a life with one hemisphere. And this is really only possible because her brain. Well, all of our brains um, are have so many, many, you know, millions and millions of connections. There's a lot of um, redundancy in the brain. That's That makes it feasible. But two, the brain can reorganize itself, and neural tissue seems to respond to the environment and organize um, the processors that we need. So that's the story of Michelle Mack. I wonder if you could uh, recount the, the first story in the, in the brain that changes itself. It's very interesting. This is a essentially a blind woman, right, who, who uh, using uh, a, a researcher, using what he called a tactile vision device. Yeah, um, well, it's, it's the work of Dr. Paul Bakurita, um, who was, did most of his work in Madison, Wisconsin. And Paul was a physician, but he was also an eye a researcher. He was a, his specialty was in working on the role of movement in vision. And, but he had a very, very personal story that set him up for this. When he was a much younger man, his father, Pedro Bachirita, who was a, a teacher of, of literature, a Catalan poet, had a stroke. And during that, in those days, so this would have been in the 60s, the doctrine of the unchanging brain, as I call it, was very much in ascendancy. And if a person had a stroke, they got very, very limited physiotherapy. And the rationale for that was the following. It was known for about 100 years that after a stroke occurs, there's a kind of global crisis in the brain. There's a lot of work to be done to reabsorb the blood from the stroke. There's inflammation. There's tissue damage that has to be corrected. 
and this crisis, uh, and also some cells are destroyed and leak out their chemicals, and it creates a kind of global chemical chaos in the brain. And this crisis called diakisis lasts for about six weeks. And what we would do is we would sort of wait out the six weeks and give people minimal rehabilitation, several hours a week. And um, then we'd see what was left at the end of a, about six weeks to two months and tell the person that's all, all that you've got. Uh, and over the next six months, maybe a year, you'll make some meager progress. Not only was that said in the 60s, it's still, it's still said today over and over again, alas. Because I'm sorry to report that many clinicians, even though we now know the brain is plastic, many clinicians practice as though it isn't really that plastic. Anyway, the story go, unfolds as follows. Um, Paul's brother, George, was a medical student. And when... Um, the six weeks had passed. Pedro was still completely paralyzed and couldn't speak. The doctor called George and said, you've got to pick up your father and take him to a chronic care facility. And uh, George knew his father would die in a place like that because there was so little stimulation and they were so bleak. So he actually took him down to Mexico. And as a first-year medical student, he didn't know very much at all about the brain and he hadn't yet learned, for instance, the brain is supposedly fixed. <laughs> and so he said, Dad, you learned to, to walk by first learning how to crawl. And so he got, him, he got him on the floor with the other medical students, and they just spent hours and hours with him, sort of supporting him, trying to get him to crawl. And then they got him to stand um, at some point. And they incrementally trained him for two years every day, the, the kind of training or rehabilitation that only someone who really loved someone would be willing to endure. And Pedro actually got walking and got speaking and he got his life back. So at that point, um, uh, he, he, was, he was functioning so well that he uh, was teaching again, married, remarried, he had been a widower, and he went mountain climbing in Bogota, Colombia, and there he had a stroke. Sorry, there he had a heart attack, I'm sorry to say. And he died. And the body was flown back to San Francisco, and Paul did an autopsy. He had an autopsy performed by the pathologist, rather. And when he was called down to look at the results of it, he saw slices of his father's brain on the table. He looked at them, and he saw that, in fact, 97.5% of the brain areas that governed m movement for um, for the for the the side of the body that had been uh, paralyzed were clearly still obliterated and Paul then realized oh my god the work that was done by George with and Pedro had somehow allowed Pedro to develop tracks or path pathways around the usual pathways, and that the brain was plastic in this older man. And so now to get to answering your question, he knew that the brain was plastic firsthand, and because he was a researcher in vision, he wondered if the senses were plastic. And so in 1969, um, there was this article in Nature, which is Europe's premier scientific magazine, and it had people sitting 
uh, who had been blind since birth, sitting in a chair that had vibrators on the back, and they had a big television camera, and they were moving it around, and the camera turned the visual they were seeing, it was seeing, into little dots, pixels, the same kind of thing that exists on your computer screen, and then fed it into uh, the person's back where a scene would kind of vibrate. Uh, and it would, I think it would move for, for, light, uh, for light and stay still for dark, something like that. And these people started to be able to see. Um, they could see scenes. They could, if you threw a paper airplane at the camera, they, they would duck. They could see it, make out the shape of a telephone or someone coming into the room. So this was a case of plasticity of the senses. And all of them had been blind since birth. And so they were now being able to use this artificial device. But the, 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 the miracle is not in the device itself. It's that the brain could learn to adapt to this input um, that was artificial and make a picture of it. And recently in Canada, people using the device were scanned. And lo and behold, they were actually processing these images in the, what's called the visual cortex of the brain. And they felt they were seeing. So that's a long answer to your question. But... It's complicated, uh, and it's an example of the plasticity of the senses, and it overcomes the idea of localizationism, because according to localizationism, um, there are separate models, modules in the brain for seeing and for, for touch sensation, and they were getting touch sensation, and somehow their brain rerouted the touch sensation to the visual module of the brain. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's, it's amazing to, to to learn about. We're going to get some specific stories. Uh, we have some uh, people in the studio who have uh, specific uh, stories of uh, progress in themselves and uh, and uh, their uh, children, uh, aided by research in neuroplasticity. We have with us Wes and Natalie Winch, and also Nick and uh, Melanie Herman. We'll get to their stories and more with uh, Dr. Norman Doidge following a break. Uh, Dr. Norman Doidge is uh, based in uh, Canada. He's on the faculty of the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry and research faculty at Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. His books are The Brain That Changes Itself and The Brain's Way of Healing. And he's coming to Utah for an event on March 31st at 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. Tickets still available for that. You can go online to avalonhillsfoundation.org. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Partners in Business Leadership Conference. Featuring keynote speaker Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Sustainability for Walmart U.S. Thursday, March 26th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Details at partners.usu.edu. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Deciding to move, most adults believe they'll be able to care for themselves for the rest of their lives. As parents age, ask them to honestly answer how they plan to care for themselves. Help them be realistic. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. A missed payment or a slip and a fall. If you have planned together, deciding to move becomes a simpler process. Start the conversation to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, amazing brain science today on the program. Neuroplasticity. That's the, the idea, the science that the brain can change itself, can heal itself. We're talking with uh, Norman Deutsch, who is author of The Brain That Changes Itself, also The Brain's Way of Healing. And he's coming to Utah for an event uh, presented by Avalon Hills Foundation. That's on March 31st at 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. Tickets still available for that. And you can go online to avalonhillsfoundation.org. Proceeds benefit Avalon Hills Foundation. I believe. And uh, we have Dr. Norman Deutsch with us for the hour. We also have in studio with us some people who are benefiting from neuroplasticity and the research ongoing. Wes and Natalie Winch are with us and Nick and Melanie Herman. You can join us as well. We'd love to hear your story at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us uh, at upraxess@gmail.com. And uh, I think it's better to go to that email address, upraxess@gmail.com. Uh, and uh, you can uh, join us on uh, Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. Before we jump into some of the stories here in studio, uh, Dr. Deutsch, uh, understand it, uh, reading the preface to your second book, The Brain's Way of Healing, um, there's been some skepticism to overcome. In fact, uh, the, the early researchers uh, spent a lot of their time overcoming this, and, and you can probably understand why, uh, just recounting from the blurb from, from your book, uh, blind people learning to see, learning disorders cured, IQs raised, painful phantom limbs erased, stroke patients recovering their faculties. Uh, it, it can seem more in the realm of religious miracles. Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, the skepticism, the early neuroplasticians, face skepticism every step of the way. Uh, this, this is what happens. Uh, you know, there was a, a really a doctrine that the brain couldn't change. It, was, it had uh, some legitimate sources and some illegitimate sources. The legitimate sources included the fact that for about 100 years, uh, neuroanatomists searched for signs that there were new cells in the brain. Uh, that could form like baby cells, baby neurons, stem cells, the way we have such cells in other organs in our bodies. And none could be found until 1998. Uh, But in in 1998, they weren't found throughout the brain, but they were found in some very important parts of the brain, uh, particularly the part of the brain that turns short-term memories into long-term memories, called the hippocampus. That's a crucial part of the brain for learning, obviously. And it's the first part of the brain that starts to go in something like Alzheimer's. Um, We had to be able to make microscopic movies of the brain, which was quite a a, a trick in terms of scanning. And the very first attempts at that involved something called microelectrodes. And, you know, in, in reality, there weren't millions of people on the planet who knew how to use that technology. And the first people who started to find signs that if you made microscopic movies, if you will, using microelectrodes, were doubted. People thought they must have made mistakes. And, of course, brain problems had a pretty negative, prog- poor prognosis, which created a fair amount of doubt that they could be helped. Um, but, you know, the, there's another, not all the, the so-called skepticism about it is, is what I would call mature skepticism, you know. Some people get so wedded to various ideas and that they don't become very skeptical of their own skepticism, if you will. And there really were many examples in the course of history of people um, making remarkable recoveries. But they, the skeptics 
again, so wedded to their idea that the brain can't change, instead of saying, well, I, I'd like to really understand that, would just sort of write it off and say, well, perhaps the person wasn't sick in the first place. Um, there's no doubt in neuroscience at this point that the brain is plastic. Um, it, is, it is not only the mainstream teaching, but it's been demonstrated thousands and thousands of times. The obstacles that we're facing is translating that into clinical practice um, and helping people to sort of change um, their points of view because they've been educated for so long in thinking that nothing could be done. Um, I do want to say that I'm at pains in the book to show, in fact, these aren't miracles. I'm trying to explain scientifically how the brain works. They only seem miraculous if you've... um, if you're sort of under the sway of the doctrine of the unchanging brain, and you tend to think of the brain as like a machine. You know, machines do many glorious things, but they don't grow new parts, they don't rewire themselves. And this machine metaphor for the brain has been very, very popular for, really, for several hundred years. It's, you still hear people writing books called The Machinery of the Brain and talking about the brain as though it's a biological computer. And... Uh, when you get, as soon as you get into that model of a machine with pre-made parts that are all designed um, to perform a particular function, it's very, very hard to get around the idea that if one of those parts is damaged, there's anything you can do about it. Hmm. Let me uh, let's bring in uh, Wes and uh, Natalie Winch. Uh, thanks for coming in. So, Natalie, start with you. Uh, tell us about your daughter. Our daughter is her name's Annie, and she's seven years old. And um, when she was developing, I noticed that she was developing not exactly correctly with her speech. And that was my first indicator that something was wrong. And um, we had her in speech therapy for years. And um, it just, the progress seemed very, very slow. And I kept asking the speech pathologist, I, I'm not sure she's hearing right, because I think she's not hearing right. And, and so we'd have her hearing tested, and it all tested well. And, and finally, um, at the end of last year, we had the speech pathologist, uh, Annie had written him a note, and it was perfectly intelligible, because she um, wrote exactly the way she heard and the way she spoke. And he looked at it, and he said, you know, I think there's something else going on here. I think she might have an auditory processing disorder. So we had her tested, and she, sure enough, had an auditory processing disorder, which means that when there's background noise, she doesn't hear. It's as if she's deaf. And so processing information, she never could get, like, clear signals. So every time somebody would speak to her, it's like she was listening underwater, which kind of understand, you know, makes it understandable why she couldn't speak or couldn't write. And... Um, with that diagnosis, they said, good luck, because they didn't have any treatments available for her. And so we were, we were searching. Hmm. So, so Wes, that, that, as a parent, that's probably not good here. Good luck. Yeah, that, on, on your way. Yeah, that, that's obviously uh, frustrating as a parent, because you care about your daughter and you want to find a way to help her. And uh, to be told everywhere you look that she has an, a, a challenge, but we can't help you is um, is frustrating. And so we were searching for um, for a solution. And I was riding the, the bus home one day and was reading Dr. Deutsch's book, The Brain That Changes Itself. And uh, there's a whole section in there about a child who has auditory processing disorder and how 
uh, neuroplasticity uh, treatments based on neuroplasticity was helping this child to overcome it. And I was so excited because I'm like, we actually have a direction. Here is an answer, uh, something that might help our daughter. And so I came home and immediately shared it with my wife. And that evening we spent hours on the computer researching and trying to find different programs and different things that might might help. And um, that was that was a good evening. That mm-hmm. was exciting. We turn to Dr. Deutsch. So th- this is this this falls, of course, within the the scope of neuroplasticity and what what neuroplasticity can do. So this the you know, the the uh, Winch's daughter, uh, she needed to rewire her brain. What needed to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, let me step back because this is a great example to illustrate some just general principles that apply to all sorts of illnesses that I'm going to be talking about when I come to Utah. You talked about how their daughter had couldn't um, extract information, and there was a lot of noise, if you will. Noise is an engineering term, and it basically means that um, a machine, or in this case an organism, can't get the information it needs because there's so much background noise interfering with the signal. So the signal isn't strong enough. What I have found reviewing the literature for many illnesses is that there are various versions of what I call a noisy brain that are getting in the way. You see this in aspects of Parkinson's, in the aging brain, in many kinds of learning disorders, in multiple sclerosis, in uh, a person after they've had a stroke, in aspects of chronic pain. Um, And here's what I believe is happening. Now, we used to think the following happened, that if a person had a stroke and they couldn't move their right leg, they'd lost 90% of of their function, that 90% of the cells that governed movement for that leg were dead. And so the function, functional deficit par, um, completely paralleled the deficit in the brain. Um, it was believed that neurons are either on or off. And if they weren't working, they had to be off. Now, I challenge that view in this book um, and bring together a whole new way of looking at the science. Here's what I think actually happens, and this is based on reviewing lots and lots of studies of the electrical firings of the brain in all those conditions I named. Um, When there's brain damage or an area fails to develop, what you usually have is the following. Yes, some cells are dead, and those ones don't fire any signals. But the fact is that it's not quite right to say that neurons are on or off. When neurons are in the so-called off position, they actually fire slow signals most of the time. And when they're on, they fire faster signals. So when there's brain damage, a few cells are dead and they're completely off. They fire no signals. Some cells were adjacent to those cells and suddenly they're getting no input. So they're not functioning because they're not getting any signals. Some cells are sick and they get irregular signals and they're, they're firing. Sorry, some cells that are sick are firing irregular signals. And then there are healthy cells adjacent to the sick cells, and they're getting irregular signals. So the sick cells can't do anything. The healthy cells that get signals that are noisy or offbeat can't do anything. And what we find is that the brain is out of sync. It's kind of like a heart 
that is got uh, an arrhythmia and it's firing the wrong way so it can't efficiently push the blood to the tissues. What we can do is find ways of training the brain or synchronizing the brain using various forms of natural energy from the outside to get it on beat again. And suddenly someone who's functioning very, very poorly can synchronize and make huge leaps forward in those many of those conditions that I described. Not always, not all the time. Nothing in medicine works for everybody because everybody's different. But there are about a hundred stories, or almost a mm-hmm. hundred stories in my book of people who do that. And the learning disorders are, the, I think, the most promising so far that I've seen for neuroplasticity. Because hmm. there you can take a life very early on when the brain is at, at its most plastic and um, resynchronize it so that it's firing strong, clear signals and teach areas adjacent to the areas that never developed properly to take over. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Dr. Norman Deutsch. He's author of uh, the books The Brain That Changes Itself and The Brain's Way of Healing. We're talking about neuroplasticity, the idea that uh, the brain can rewire itself and, uh, and counteract a whole host of, uh, of maladies. We're talking about a few of those we have with us in studio, Wes and Natalie Winch. They're telling us the story of their daughter. We'll get into the story of, uh, of Nick Herman. And uh, we have his mother, Melanie Herman, as well. Uh, and uh, Norman Deutsch is coming to Utah. He's uh, coming to, uh, for an event presented by Avalon Hills Foundation. It's on March 31st, 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. Tickets still available. You can go to avalonhillsfoundation.org. So, uh, so Natalie, um, so you, so Wes reads the, this chapter in the book, and and you get all excited. What what happens next? Well, we we got connected um, with the listening center, and it's. Um, a center in Toronto, Canada, and it's run by Palmadol. And um, the idea of the treatment is to train um, Annie's brain to be able to hear and process the sounds correctly. Um, Paul described Annie's learning and processing like she was trying to learn on a teeter-totter, like the processing wasn't stable. So her when they did the test, they did a bone conduction test, and her ears were actually hearing like opposite of each other. And so there was all of this um, contrary understanding. Like there was no, no like in sync understanding what was going on. And so what they did is that we went to Toronto and the, the treatment is all done by through Mozart music. And there's headphones and it's called an electronic ear. And they filter the music. And through this filtering process, um, they train her brain to process the sounds together. So the hearing now, instead of being in opposition to each other, she's hearing simultaneously. And so um, the first phase was just a passive listening phase where she would just listen. And we did that for a week in Toronto and then we came home with a, a listening program and we worked on that for about a month. And then there's a break, a resting period. And then um, we went back to Toronto and then there was an expressive part with the Mozart music and that's when they introduced her voice um, with a microphone as when she's listening with the headphones and um, as she was talking it would amplify in the background the Mozart music so it kind of um, piggybacked on the first um, passive listening 
And as she developed this, it was amazing because right before we went to Toronto, we were trying to get services um, from the school because of her auditory processing. She was functioning very lowly, you know, at a low, low level. And so when they tested her at the school, she had a very high cognitive ability, but she was performing very in the low category. And then after the second phase, they said, we're going to do a trial intervention and see how this program works. Um, and, and we were also doing this other neuroplasticity um, intervention as well. And when we came back the second time, we were at the tail end of the, um, the treatment at home. And they tested her again at the school. And this is the special ed teacher, she was amazed. She said, I've never seen such a turnaround. Hmm. Um, back in October, at the end of October is when we, she, she was tested the first time, and she was testing like 40%, um, 30%, 50% on these tests. And when she was tested again in January, in the middle of January, so this isn't just a few months, like three or four months, um, she was getting 100%, 90%. Hmm. The turnaround was absolutely remarkable. And... Um, for me personally, I love that she's getting the academic success, but I feel like I know my daughter in a way that I've never known her before. Um, she would be so frustrated when she'd come home from school and she'd try to communicate with me. And I would have two chances uh, because I couldn't understand her. And if I would say, you know, sweetie, I don't understand. Can you, can you say it again? And she would try again and... If I didn't get it within two chances, then she would be melted on the floor and yelling, you don't understand, um, you never listen. And I'm like, oh, sweetie, like, there's nothing more that I want than to be able to understand you. And since this intervention, um, I, we haven't had that for months. She can clearly express herself. I can understand her. Um, it's, she has a sense of humor. Mm. I didn't even know that she had a sense of humor. She's actually really funny. Um, in my mind, it was, she was trapped in this prison of her mind that she couldn't communicate. She wanted to desperately, and now those shackles have kind of fallen, and she's becoming this beautiful, like, happy person that, I, what, that she was when she was a baby. And um, it's just beautiful to just see her, like, freed from that prison. What's, what's, what's been your perspective? Very similar. Uh, you know, one of the, the pleasant things for me as a, as a father is that she jokes around all the time. She tells jokes every day, and she has this personality that's just delightful to get to know better. And of course, you know, not having the breakdowns and the meltdowns on the floor and and uh, the frustration in her and in us is always a nice thing too. And it's just been it's been a wonderful journey to be able to see that change. And really, more than I had expected, I, I did not expect this dramatic of a change. I was hoping for going from 40% to 60%, 40 to 70%. I would have been delighted. To move from 40 to 100 is, it's just, it's just wonderful. Hmm. We're going to take another break. When we come back more with Dr. Norman Deutsch, he's author of The Brain That Changes Itself and The Brain's Way of Healing. Uh, he's based in Toronto. He's on the faculty of the uh, University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry and research faculty at Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research in New York. He's coming to Utah for an event on March 31st at 7 p.m. at Grand America in Salt Lake City. 
and the tickets available at the Avalon Hills Foundation website. That's avalonhillsfoundation.org. When we come back, we'll hear uh, Nick Herman's story. We'll hear from Melanie Herman as well and more with uh, Dr. Deutsch. You can uh, join this program at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. L-O-L. What happens? Let's do... When technology starts to change our language. Lol, let's do this interview via text. Lol. <laughs> it would take us like forever to do this by text. Oh, lol. I'm Guy Raz. Spoken and unspoken. Stories from the frontiers of human communication. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our final segment with uh, Dr. Norman Doidge. He's author of The Brain That Changes Itself. Also, the brain's way of healing. We're talking about neuroplasticity, the science that the brain can rewire itself, can change itself. And uh, Dr. Deutsch uh, says that uh, through the emerging science of neuroplasticity, we've learned that our thoughts can switch our genes on and off, altering our brain anatomy. And that uh, people's uh, that we can develop machines that can follow these physical changes in order to read people's thoughts, allowing the paralyzed to control computers and electronics just by thinking. Uh, Dr. Deutsch is coming to Utah for an event on March 31st. That's at 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. And more information and tickets available at avalonhillsfoundation.org. And we're joined in studio by Wes and Natalie Winch. We heard the story of their their daughter. We'll uh, jump into Nick Herman's story. And uh, his mother, Melanie, is here as well. Before we get into Nick's story, Dr. Deutsch, I want to follow up on that It's a startling statement. We've learned that our thoughts can switch our genes on and off, altering our brain anatomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, this grows out of work that was done uh, by Eric Kandel. um, um, He's now at Columbia. That's where I trained. And Dr. Kandel was a psychiatrist who uh, was originally uh, wanted to be a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. And some of his colleagues sensed he was very, very good in the lab, and we n- believed that psychotherapy worked originally through learning, which is, of course, a thought process. And he was encouraged to try to demonstrate what was going on in the brain in learning at a, a you know a very, very fine level, um, you know, between the neurons. And he won the Nobel Prize for a number of things, but one of them was to show that as an animal learns, the connections between the nerve cells. Uh, increase or decrease as needed. And then he started to say, okay, well, what's causing this? And he went deeper into the cells and was able to show that to change these connections between the nerve cells, proteins had to be made by the neurons and that the learning activity actually triggered switches in the genes to turn on or off um, to make these proteins as needed. So yes, like we're in, it's it's a whole new world now. Um, with with Dr. Kendall's work because we're, we're we're connecting the dots between mental experience 
and changes in brain structure. Mm-hmm. Most people think of just one aspect of our genes. If we were went to school and I did, we were taught that genes are the template for uh, you know each each cell carries a, a set of our genes, and they're the template for who we become genetically. That's just one function of the genes. There's also a transcription function that turns the genes on and off to do what they have to do. And the fact that thought can sculpt your brain is extraordinary. And what my work is about is trying to see the the clinical and cultural significance of this. If I could just comment on the last story, I, I do want yes. to add, I mean, it's so poignant. I've, I've seen these kinds of things happen many times. And it also occurs with autistic children sometimes that... Uh, I didn't mention that before, but everyone has in their ear a, a, a zoom, like it's an auditory zoom. Think of the, of the zoom lens on a camera. Well, when you walk into a noisy room, at first it's all booming, buzzing confusion. It's noise. You can't make out any conversation. But because if you have a normally functioning auditory zoom, you can soon zoom in on particular conversations in that noisy room. And that's often not working in children with auditory processing disorders. It's also not working in many autistic children. And I describe a number of examples in my book of children who had autism, who trained that auditory zoom. They lost their hypersensitivities to sound. Their noisy brains um, reformatted themselves, if you will. And they were able to start to resume relationships just the way we just heard described. Um, And the reason is, if you're hearing noise all the time, uh, and I'm now speaking of autistic children, they often hear very threatening noises, like the noises that are made by predators, low noises. You know, the the disturbing sound you hear when you go to Jaws and the the shark comes on. Or um, in any movie, when something bad's about to happen, they have those very low noises. That's what autistic kids hear, and they're in fight or flight all the time. And when you're in fight or flight, for your, you're scared for your life, you can't form relationships. So although the intervention is based on sound, it actually speaks to the brain in its own language because our ears convert patterns of information in the sound waves into patterns of electrical information. They allow the brain to fire differently. And they can actually change relationships. And in the book, I describe not just the use of sound to speak to the brain in its own language, but light, movement, vibration, bodily-based interventions. And the beauty of it is that these interventions are all non-invasive. No skulls have to be cracked open. No medication is required. What we're doing is we're learning to speak to the brain in its own language, which is patterns of information carried by waves of energy. Let's turn to the, the Hermans. And uh, Nick, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll uh, uh, get the beginning of your story with your mother. Okay. First, we'll talk about you and then we'll talk to you. Okay. Sounds Sometimes fun. annoying to people. But uh, uh, so, so Melanie Herman. Yes. Uh, when Nick was born, what, uh, what, what were the challenges that you Well, faced? Nick was born uh, three months prematurely. Uh, he weighed two nine, two pounds, nine ounces, and was in the ICU, newborn ICU, and on a ventilator. And um, the ventilator pressures were too high, and he blew some holes in his lungs and, and went into cardiac arrest. And it was actually in what they call code for 30 minutes um, and on 100% oxygen. And they, they saved him. And a few days later, uh, did a 
an ultrasound of his brain and found that he'd suffered quite a severe brain hemorrhage as a result of the of the experience. And so unlike the Winches who kind of had a waiting period to watch their daughter develop, we knew at the very beginning that um, Nick was going to have challenges ahead. And so we were doing things. Um, my background was in, in early childhood education, and um, I was early on seeking things and looking for things and enriching his environment. Our family did a lot to enrich his environment. And, and um, knowing that he had... You know, it was a waiting game with Nick. It, the doctor said, if he ever sits up, if he ever feeds himself, um, if he ever walks or speaks. And so that wasn't a very pretty picture to look forward to. And it was difficult, And um, but we had a lot of hope. Uh, and there were some signs from Nick that his, his eyes were able to track and follow. Uh, his father put a train around his room as an infant, and he could lay in his crib and track that train going around the room. And so that was impressive to the doctors, given his severe brain hemorrhage. And um, also, when you talk about the woman with half a brain, when, the, when Nick's brain um, hemorrhage, when the blood dissolved, they told us in follow-up um, CATS MRIs that his uh, um, part of his brain was gone. As the, as the blood would dissolve, it took brain tissue with it. So we knew it was missing part of his brain. Um, we didn't know, I didn't know the word neuroplasticity really until 2012, 11 or 12, when I discuss, discovered Dr. Deutsch's book. But over the years, we actually were doing some neuroplastic interventions, not knowing exactly what we were doing, but trying everything we could to um, enhance his, his uh, development and his prospects for a happy and successful life. A few of those things were um, neurofeedback which we, f we discovered in 2007. Um, also a cognitive program called Processing and Cognitive Enhancement, which increases processing speed and um, working memory and auditory processing, all, various cognitive skills. Um, so you can see when I found Dr. George's book, I was actually still searching. And, and Nick was an adult now, 20, early 20s, um, and, and doing very well. Um, but but still hoping for more. And um, I, I came across the interview with Alan Gregg and Dr. Deutsch back, it must have been in 2008, around the time his first book came out. And it was just so, it just spoke to me so clearly. This was, this, this was real. This was it. This is what I knew. I'd known my, my whole life that this was possible. And to hear someone say and define um, the brain that way and its capacity to change and improve with, with effort, um, just spoke to me. I knew I knew that was it. I had that book ordered in five minutes, um, and and you know as I read the book, it was it was amazing because not only was I reading for Nick and had him in mind, but I have a daughter with a um, with a seizure disorder, and 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 I had other people that I love and I'm concerned about, and and also my own my own mental health and well-being. I found solutions and answers and hope in, in almost every chapter of that book. Hmm. Something that applied to to Nick or someone else in my family or someone else that I cared for greatly, and even my own. Uh, when, when Dr. Deutsch talks about mental activity shaping our, our, our brain anatomy, I, I personally experienced that. And as I, as, he, as I applied the principles he described in his, his ski slope analogy, which is, I don't know, maybe he'll tell us about that. I, I just see these principles working um, all the time, and hmm. it's been a great blessing for our family. Let me turn to Nick. Uh, so, um, I don't know, when you, when, when you were young, were you told by medical professionals or others around you, you know, statements like, you'll never do whatever, or 
or you'll you'll always have this limitation or you know or um growing up actually it was it was a struggle um growing up when i was younger i would always have issues with finding friends um being able to communicate with those friends uh i always I guess you can say I was always the slow one in conversations. Like somebody would tell a joke and then finally like two minutes later, I'd finally get the joke and I'd laugh kind of out of place and it would make me feel really, really awkward. So, you know, growing up I had, I had those issues. Um, granted I still have those issues today. They're not as prominent as they were thanks to uh, Dr. Deutsch and all these programs that I have been able to, um, be part of so what I just remember one particular story when I was 16 um, dealing with my left-sided cerebral palsy due due to the um, due to being born premature I just remember going to the doctor and saying you know I want to fix my arm I want to fix my leg I want to be able to use it more I want it I want it to I want to be able to be quote unquote normal um and the doctor was like oh well we're you know we're sorry you know you're extremely lucky what you got um you can go home you can dance kiss smooze carry on go home happy kind of a thing and you know the doctor meant well um but after that conversation I just remember crying um and saying to myself, I want more. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to do things that um, normal kids do. I want to be able to. I wanted to be able to go out and play basketball on the on the on with friends. I wanted to go and be able to play football. I wanted to be able to have that that exhilarating feeling, so called of having a football thrown to me and I'm being able to catch it and being like, oh my gosh, I actually did it. Um, I wanted more. And thanks to thanks to my mom and her loving, persistent ways that mothers are always <laughs> are, I just, um, I just was able to go throughout these multiple, per, I guess you can say procedures of... Um, using neurofeedback, um, some other other ones that we were doing, uh, the PACE program, the one that my mom talked about, uh, the one that we most recently found, it's called Muse. It's a personal, um, personal headset device that you actually wear on your head and it reads your brain signals and helps you be able to be calm, um, through breathing techniques and things like that, uh, I was able to also go to Toronto and do um, have these uh, listening exercises done with Palmadol um, and everything else. And it helped. And when I was in Toronto, I actually learned that the left side of my the left side of my brain, uh, the bone called the vestibular system it, on my left side kind of had the quote unquote cerebral palsy effect as well. Um, 
I would, when people would be talking and everything, I kind of kind of zone out and have that point where, okay, what were we talking about or what's going on or, oh, I'm not interested in this certain conversation. And, and a lot of people would be like, that's kind of rude that you're not listening to anyone. Um, the fact is I was, it was really mentally exhausting um, trying to have all that information come in and just be like, okay, what are we talking about? How can I, how can I, how can I contribute to the conversation? What exactly is going on in this conversation? What does this mean? You know, just stuff like that. And that would really, really hurt that I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. I, um, and also, you know, during this time I was able, I, I'd get such terrible, terrible headaches, um, due to this because, because it was just so strenuous of trying to figure out how to communicate. Um, but now as you can see it, like I graduated with my bachelor's degree in communication studies. Um, just being able to have that drive of saying, um, I'm not the, I'm not the only one that can do this, uh, given, given, um, the circumstances and just being able to say anybody, anybody willing to say, Hey, I want to learn. I want to be able to get out there and do things. Um, they can help. I mean, there's multiple, multiple ways you can help yourself and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive and going to Toronto every, you know, every year, every couple of years, there are numerous, numerous ways and outlets out there, um, that somebody can go to and help themselves. Uh, I have a, I have a friend, uh, an old friend, my dad's old business partner's son, Jesse Scott. He was on uh, KSL quite a few times. Um, He ended up being really sick and he was given medicine, but they, once he took that medicine, they realized, oh, it it was 20 times the lethal, like 20 times, it wasn't concentrated. Basically, um, he ended up being brain dead. And just to see his story from where he was when this accident occurred to where he is now, um, he has made leaps and bounds and it can't, it, yes, it, it happened with neuroplasticity, but also he was able to have people there for him every step of the way. Uh, there's an actually, the place that he actually does therapy for is called NeuroWorks. It's in West Valley City. Uh, Dale Hull is the owner, and he even had a he had a traumatic experience where I hope he doesn't mind me telling this, but he had a traumatic experience where he ended up being paralyzed from the neck down. Um, after years and years of therapy, he's now able to walk again. Um, being able to train his, train his brain to say, hey, you can learn to go, you know, you may have 
had these issues before, but you can train your brain to where you can walk again. It may not be a hundred percent, um, you know, with people being paralyzed or people with cognitive, uh, disabilities, cerebral palsy, anything like that, any, uh, disabilities, autism, autism, paralysis, anything, um, anything that anybody deals with, you may, you know, you may be able to see improvements and, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of skeptics out there that say, oh yeah, you won't be able to make my, make my daughter walk again. Or, oh, my, my son will never be able to, um, you know, be able to communicate in a way and have lots of friends. And, but there is help. I mean, there is help and there are leaps and bounds that people can make. I've made leaps and bounds, um, with all these, with all these different kind of workings that I do. Um, mostly recently I've done the muse. Uh, you can find that online. Um, and just being able to calm myself, I'm able to keep up with conversation a lot more, um, be able to communicate better. And, you know, it doesn't have, it, you don't have to get down on yourself. I, growing up, I would, um, I still do, but I've learned to say, Hey, you know, respect the gifts that you're given. Um, respect that outlet that's out there. People are wanting to help you. And even if people don't understand and are skeptical of this, um, I just want to say that this works. Very good. So Very good. Um, amazing story. Uh, we're, we're at the end of our time, uh, past, past time. We'll need to, need to close. Dr. Deutsch, um, I wonder, just comment on, on Nick's story, and, and then we'll have uh, final words here. Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful story of, of, of persistence and love and applying, the, you know, the appropriate model to the brain. Uh, and, you know, he, got to, he had to endure what so many people even today have to endure, which is uh, a healthcare professional who has good intentions, who's trapped in the doctrine of the unchanging brain, who basically, working from the theory which happens to be incorrect, decrees in advance that nothing much can be done. And sometimes things can't be done. But in, in my work, the position I take is an agnostic position, which is I don't know whether something can, can help or not, but let's give it a try. Um, so it's not replacing the neurological nihilism that, you know, basically Nick has just described that, you know, that influenced the people who said, look, you're lucky to be where you are. With It's not replacing that neurological nihilism with a kind of neurological utopianism that says everybody can be treated no matter what. It's saying the brain is far more adaptable than we ever understood, so let's give some of these techniques a try. And in many situations, they can be helpful. Well, we'll leave, so I, it's a kind of story I hear a lot of, um, yeah. and just uh, you know, thank goodness for his and his mother's persistence. There's much more we could say. Obviously, uh, you'll you'll have to come to the event here to hear more and uh, read uh, Dr. George's books, which are "The Brain That Changes Itself" and "The Brain's Way of Healing." 
The event is on March 31st, 7 p.m. at the Grand America in Salt Lake City. It's presented by the Avalon Hills Foundation. You can find more and get tickets at avalonhillsfoundation.org. Dr. Norman Deutsch has been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And in studio, we have had Wes and Natalie Winch. Thank you. And uh, Melanie and Nick Herman, thanks. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Have you heard about the Yellowstone to Uinta Connection or the Western Wildway Priority Wildlife Corridor and the Bear River Range Corridor? What we will talk about today is the critical importance of protecting, maintaining, and creating wildlife corridors throughout Utah in the West. Animals, and yes, plants, and all other critters that live in ecosystems, such as birds, insects, and amphibians, always suffer when their ecosystem and the ecosystems that are adjoining theirs, either through land or water corridors, are fragmented and minimalized, if not lost altogether, due to human activities. The ever-expanding web of roads and highways, residential and commercial development, intensive agriculture, energy development, and off-road vehicle trails, in essence, trap animals in an ever-shrinking island of non-connected ecosystems. It's when species can't move between ecosystems to mate, migrate, eat, pollinate, find new homes and resources, recycle nutrients, seek refuge, and more, that inbreeding can cause significant problems for flora and fauna, sometimes even extinction. Our politicians and agency folks, as well as developers, farmers and ranchers, businesses and everyday residents, can all help to assure we preserve, maintain, and develop a network of these corridors connecting large and small ecosystems running from Canada through the United States into Mexico. One such large project, called the Spine of the Continent, is a geographic, social, and scientific effort to sustain linkages along the Rocky Mountains so that plants and animals can keep moving. A local example, the Bear River Mountains, located in northern Utah and southern Idaho, is a relatively narrow tract of forest land in the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest and the Caribou and Targhee National Forests. This mountain range and surrounding basin are a key component of the Western United States Biological Corridor System. The Bear River Basin Corridor is a critical choke point for species migration in the Western United States because it offers the only major link between the Northern and Southern Rockies, or more specifically, the link between the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem and the High Uintas Wilderness Area. Here's how you can get involved. We have dedicated organizations working on the protection, expansion, and maintenance of wildlife corridors. I mentioned the Yellowstone to Uinta connections. They, along with the Bear River Watershed Council and others in our state, are actively working on wildlife corridors. I spoke to Dr. John Carter, manager of the Yellowstone to Uinta's connection, about their program. They're doing great work to restore fish and wildlife habitat in the Yellowstone to Uintas corridor through the application of science, education, and advocacy. He invites you to check out their website at www.yellowstoneuintas.org. I'm Jim Goodwin for Wild About Utah. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. 
For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.